the next one of the uh, seven factors of enlightenment is called willpower, energy. It's very often translated, it's called virya in Pali, it's very often translated as energy, but the word energy in uh, in English is um, so uh, loaded with uh, different meanings that I don't think it's a very good uh, translation for us to use. So I like to use the word willpower because it's mental energy that's wanted. Now, obviously, mental energy is often depending on physical energy. If one is physically very weak, it's very difficult to bring up mental energy. That's why willpower is the more apt way of describing what is needed there. Now, we had first we had mindfulness, which starts everything. Without knowing what's going on, we don't have any way of getting started. And then we have the investigation into the three characteristics. And since I had already talked about uh, impermanence and qualessness, uh, I only talked about Dukkha, the third one. And I have already mentioned that one can use any one of those three as one's investigation subject. And one should pick out the one that one feels most interested in. If there is no interest, the willpower is also very hard to arouse. So if one is interested in analyzing self and no self, that's what one should do. If one is interested in becoming far more knowledgeable and understanding of impermanence. Well, that's what one should do. And if Dukkha is quite clear, one should investigate it again and again. And if it's totally unclear, and one has resistance to it, one should investigate it again and again. So we don't need to investigate all three, we investigate one, and what we should be doing, if we are really interested to do as the Buddha said, we should try and remember to investigate one of these three characteristics at all times, whatever happens, and not react with our typical typical reaction of, I like it or I don't like it, which is the typical way of reacting, I like it or I don't like it, I want it or I don't want it, or even stronger, I'm going to have it, and if it's the last thing I do, or I'm going to get rid of it. So, we should try and remember any one of those three, at any time at all, and investigate whatever there is under the auspices of one of those three characteristics. That's what is meant with that second step of the seven factors of enlightenment, the investigation into Dhamma. And then the third step is the um, willpower. Now, willpower, without it we don't do anything. One doesn't even get up in the morning. One does nothing without willpower. It's the uh, opposite of our third hindrance of sloth and torpor. 
And the word itself already denotes what is meant. There's power behind it. But not power over others. Power over oneself. Power over the uh, instincts and impulses. Powerful will that wants to go in a certain direction. Now, obviously, we can use willpower in the wrong way. If somebody wants to rob a bank, you've got to have willpower to do that because you have to make a lot of arrangements and be very careful not to be caught and all that sort of thing. That's why we first practice mindfulness and investigation into dhammas and then are aware of the fact that we need a lot of willpower to keep that going. Because we have been investigated the either Anicca Dukkha Anatta. I mean, highly unlikely that we're going to go and rob a bank or anything silly in similar vein. Although, that's wishful thinking. It's not uncommon that people use a lot of willpower to get what they want because they think it's going to make them happy. And it has nothing to do with Anicca Dukkha Nata. Nothing at all. And the will is so strong because the desire is so strong. And they identify totally with that desire. It happens over and over again. And if one has practiced uh, quite a long time and one knows such a person and one watches them do it, It's like digging your own grave. It's so foolish. And you can see very well that that person is using all their power, their mental power, for the wrong purpose. And there's nothing one can do. Absolutely nothing. You can tell them it makes no impression at all. The willpower is strong. So we all have willpower. We all have it. But we keep on using it for our desires. And that's why we need to check our desires and see whether they are actually desires that will take us along this path or whether they're desires for sensual gratification of any sort, whatever it may be. In the desire for sensual gratification, the strongest one is the desire for sexual gratification. And that's also the one that creates the most havoc with people's emotions. I don't think I have to go into that any further. I think everybody knows about this. I don't think we need to have a strong explanation on that. Naturally, when you're 73, it's easy, isn't it? But hopefully one can come to terms with that a little earlier because that desire is really one which takes people off the path over and over again as you all probably know and have heard even monks who've been monks for more than two decades that desire takes them off the path So, they claim not, 
they claim they can satisfy desire and stay on the path. But that's a myth. If one is a household, that's a different story altogether. There's a totally different ballgame there. And yet, there is, in, there is dependence. There's emotional dependence. And that emotional dependence speaks against the freedom to think and act in a way which is only useful for the past. There's always something that one has to take into consideration where there are other people involved. Whatever situation one is in, willpower is needed, makes our karma because the willpower creates the intention and therefore we need to really watch what we will, what our will is. We have a very nice saying in, um, in German, which probably doesn't translate well at all into English. I'll try. The, a person's will is their paradise. Mentions Willerstein Himmelreich, yes. Um, whatever we want, that appears to be where we are going to be in paradise. Now, if we have used our willpower, which everybody has to use in order to do anything, over and over again, for things which we thought were going to make us happy, and we're still not happy, are we still thinking that next time, when we use that willpower for the same thing again, we're going to be cleverer, we're going to do it better, there are going to be less obstructions, Nobody's going to say no, or what do we think? Or are we finally convinced of the fact that we might have been going in a direction where it's impossible to become really happy? Now that just never means that we have to leave ordinary life. It's a great skill, and it's a meditative skill with common insight, to be truly happy in everyday life. But that skill has to be learned and watched all the time. We have to have the right kind of intention. The wrong kind of intention is always concerned, and we can take that sort of as a generalization and use it as a checkpoint. It's always concerned with personal ego support. If we have, if we're looking for that, you can be sure it's the wrong kind of intention and our willpower is ill-advised. If our intention is giving, helping, creating something which goes along the spiritual path and maybe of some elevating consciousness for others, we can be sure that that is the right kind of intention. 
So actually what we need to say in order to make it easy is if it isn't for ego support, it's okay. And if it's for ego support, it isn't. Now, the mind is a magician. That's what we call it, a magician. And it can make out of anything whatever it wishes. It can justify any will, any wish, any desire, any action, anything. It can justify it. Only mindfulness helps us. And real honest. Not what I want, but the way things really are. The, um, the way things really are can only be ascertained when we leave out the way we'd like it to be. We're not going to get this human life and the planet Earth into any condition the way we'd really like it to be. It's impossible. It's sometimes nice and sometimes not nice. It's got every feature in it that is possible, but we're never going to get it the way we want it to be. So we, in order to check out our intentions and the other karma-making factors, we need to let go of the idea the way we'd like it to be. And then we actually have clear sailing. Perfectly all right. Because then we can use our willpower for the strenuous effort of purification. Now, obviously, people do run up against obstacles. Family obstacles, job obstacles, uh, health obstacles. There's no way one can be immune. There's no reason to be immune. Why should we be? Nobody's promised us a thing. They're all karmic resultants. So everybody encounters some sort of obstacle. Sometimes it's money. Whatever it may be. Then, willpower is the most important aspect of a person's makeup. Because if one has found that what one is doing is the right thing to do, from every angle we can look at it, we keep on going in spite of obstacles. In fact, we see obstacles as challenges. And we don't resent them. We don't um, dislike these obstacles. But they are the challenges so that the pure or the purity of heart and mind has another chance to develop. If everything always goes all right, which it never does, but if it should, everything is going wonderful. Nobody says a thing that we don't want to hear. Nothing ever happens that we don't want to have happen. Well, what do we need willpower for? What do we need any kind of strength for? Where are the challenges? What are we called upon to do? We're being, which doesn't happen, but if that were to happen, we would be being coddled uh, like a baby. A baby has everything to do to stay alive. That's its function at baby time. 
Well, we're past that. We know what to do to stay alive. So now we need to know what to do to grow. And since we're not going to grow physically, obviously, we've done that. That's over with. I don't think anybody's growing. But I was told after 25 you get shorter all the time. That's probably why I'm so short. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm long past 25. So we're not going to grow physically. It's a spiritual growth that is we are concerned with here. And the spiritual growth that takes place in heart and mind. And it's not a myth or it's not words, but it's a purification system. The Buddha's genius lies in the fact that he gave methods. What to do and how to do it. And we've been using these methods. Not all of them, but quite a number of them. And the main um, generalization there is calm and insight. Calm in the meditation, insight in the contemplation. And contemplation, again, is trying to find the truth within oneself, about oneself. There is no other truth, because the Buddha said the whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this fathom long body and mind. Once we know what's going on in here, we know what's going on out there. And we don't have to be mind readers. Not at all. We know exactly what people think, because we've been thinking the same. There's no problem at all. It's very easy. And uh, we have a, you know, we have a constant connection with each other. As we're observing each other, which we do even uh, without wanting to, we are connected to each other. And we're actually influenced by each other. So if we don't know ourselves, of course we know nobody. But if we do know ourselves, we know everybody. So that means that we have that as a challenge, particularly when there are obstacles. Now, the obstacles that we encounter would be a lack of support on the material level or the emotional level. But if it is an obstacle or becomes an obstacle, we have created that through our reaction. So our willpower needs to be very finely tuned, not that we uh, charge around like a bull in a china shop. I mean, little kids do that. They want things and they start throwing things around, that sort of thing. But that doesn't help us at all. Our willpower has to be connected to our understanding of what it actually means to grow spiritually, to purify, and even though it may not be, probably isn't, in line with our desire for sensual gratification, still go ahead with it. That's willpower. One thing which helps physically, but not everybody is of course uh, able to do this because they may not have the physical um, prerequisites for that, is um, fasting. Everybody 
needs to eat and wants to eat. And voluntarily to stop that for just a period of time, if one is physically um, able to do that and has uh, the necessary either knowledge or necessary supervision, it's an exercise in willpower. Noble silence is an exercise in willpower. Sitting on the meditation pillow and trying to become concentrated in the beginning is an exercise in willpower. Later on, it's natural. But now we mustn't misunderstand that willpower is something which is result thinking which is very often misunderstood. Sit down on the meditation pillow, I want to have certain results, and so I direct my will there. If I think of the results, then I can't think of concentration. The two just don't go together. It's either or. So willpower is nothing other then having a means of directing the mind where one wants it to be and then letting go. Of course, when the mind again has lost its willpower, starts rummaging around, we'll have to re-arouse it. Most people have to re-arouse their willpower many times during a day. Even just to fulfill the job that they have to do in order to make a living, unless they love that, what they're doing. And most people just do it in order to make a living. They have to re-arouse their willpower to keep going. There, it's not so difficult. And why is that? Because we see that as a means of survival. And that's our second biggest craving, the craving to be. So anything we do that is connected with our means of survival is, um, creates willpower because it's a very, very strong craving. But nobody, or no, not nobody, but very few people figure out that meditation is a means for survival. The survival, the quality of heart and mind, not just physical survival. It's a quality of one's life that's at stake. And therefore, very few people arouse sufficient willpower to actually keep going. Those that do have usually become very well acquainted with their own dukkha, with their own inner restlessness, dissatisfaction, worry, and so on. And therefore, the willpower is there. The challenges we have in life, they hone our willpower. We should always welcome them. Without them, we would not be able to enlarge upon that inner strength. Willpower is inner strength. 
the inner strength to do what we have set out to do. The way to hell is paved with good intentions and lack of willpower. The good intention is there, but the willpower isn't. So that happens to many people. They think of themselves as very nice. They probably are, because they've got good intentions, but they haven't got the willpower to actually manifest those intentions. And while the intention is good, if we then don't do anything about it, the good karma that we would have made with that intention is negated. So we can see that we really need strength of mind, which is another word for willpower. And that strength of mind needs to be, mind needs to be purified enough to know what is really good for us not what we like very often that what we like isn't good for us I saw a picture postcard somewhere at a news agent I thought it was brilliant years ago as a, some very um, um, elegantly dressed lady or painted and she says how come that everything I like is either fattening, illegal, or immoral. Well, I mean, maybe it's a bit exaggerated, but it was a very nice thought, I thought. I thought, that's right, because these are the things that one desires. It doesn't necessarily have to be illegal, but it was, it was probably in the time when people were cracking down on marijuana and all that sort of thing. So, it's true. We have to use our willpower in the way that we have understood is the best way. And not because we think that our desires are going to be satisfied that way. You see, the only person that can be truly happy and peaceful is a person without desire. There's no way you can be happy as long as there are desires. Now we get a taste of that in the third meditative absorption. But only as long as the meditation lasts, of course. But having a taste of that, it does become easier. Now there's always a question then, but what about desiring or wanting enlightenment and what we usually say to that is that we practice so that we can eventually get rid of that desire too and if we use that as our linchpin so to say is that what I'm going to do connect it with the way the Buddha taught is it on the way to purification? Is it on the way to getting rid of desire? And the answer is yes. That's fine. If it isn't, there's something not quite in order.
Maybe the answer is it's only for survival. That's all right, too. If it's only for survival. But there are so many other things in between. Connected to mindfulness is something I haven't mentioned yet, which I'd like to mention right now, and that's clear comprehension. It's always mentioned in some manner or form together with mindfulness. Mindfulness is sati, and clear comprehension is sampanyanya. For everyday use, we can divide clear comprehension into four parts. And that will be very useful because it will give us again a sort of guideline what we can do and what we can't do, or what we could do and what we don't really want to do. It will show us where sensual desire plays too big a role and it will show us also where our willpower is best utilized. So the first thing that we question is what is the purpose of my thought which can then translate into speech and then into action. What's the purpose? What is my intention? Now obviously the intention can be a mixed intention. That's fine. Just so we know it. And having understood what the intention is behind that, what I want to do, then the next question is, am I using the most skillful means? Or have I got the most skillful means on hand in order to actually manifest that intention? Now, if again the answer is yes, the third question then is, are the intention, the purpose, and the means within the Dhamma? I like to say to that, to question whether the Buddha would have done it. If the answer is no, don't do it. It's not going to work. But if the answer is, yeah, he could have done that, it would be all right. If he hadn't been a monk, he would have done it. It would be all right. Then one goes ahead with that speech or action. And having done it, the last question then is, did I actually satisfy the intention? Did it work out? Did that what I had in mind actually happen? And if it didn't, why not? What went wrong? Now, if we have been mistaken in the third one, that if we, would have, if we had said, oh yes, Buddha would do that, it's okay, and actually we were mistaken, we will find that the karmic resultant doesn't let, it, let us wait very long. There's a very soon we'll have a karmic resultant which will tell us something went amiss.
and that comical Zalpin may be nothing other than not being totally happy, unhappiness, um, regrets, guilt feelings, not being able to cope, all sorts of things like that. They don't have to be a resultant where uh, somebody will attack us or anything like that where we lose all our belongings, nothing like that. It's the inner feeling. Have we, however, thought, said and done something which is on the right path? The opposite happens. We feel quite at ease. We, we have no regrets, no guilt feelings. And we feel quite protected by the Dhamma. The Buddha said, the Dhamma, the action of Dhamma, protects the Dhamma practitioner. So if we act within the Dhamma, we're protected from mishaps. That's why this clear comprehension, which only takes a few moments to uh, think about, can be extremely helpful. It will actually show us what our main intentions are in life. What are my priorities? And as I've said before, this is the first day of the rest of our lives. Write down what you want to do with it. Want to be happy? Want to be peaceful? Sure, but how? And see whether the willpower which is needed to attain that goal of happiness and peacefulness, whether that is being put in its right place, where it will actually do what we want it to do. Willpower is a very, very strong um, inner quality. A person, for instance, like Hitler, would have had enormous willpower. He had innumerable obstacles to overcome. His willpower was directed in the wrong direction, obviously. He never used clear comprehension, never asked himself whether um, the Buddha would have done what he did. But his willpower was enormous. And with that enormous willpower, he also had the um, opportunity to change directions of, one, of many people. So we have to be very careful where we use our willpower. We've got to make absolutely sure that what we're using it for is the right thing because it's such a strong inner quality. We should never desist from using it, the willpower. It's not power over others, it's power over oneself. But we should always make sure it's the right thing what we're doing, the right way to use it. It also gives the mind, willpower gives the mind a feeling of strength, of resilience. It gives the mind a feeling of um, not being pushed around, by the emotions of other people. 
not being pushed around by the emotions of other people gives one a feeling of being at ease. It doesn't mean not having any connection to others, but it's a connection which is voluntary and not dependent. The voluntary connection is one which can be quite free. It doesn't have to be determined by anything, whether the other person agrees or whether the other person appreciates. Nothing like that. That freedom is very important. So willpower underwrites also our freedom. Our freedom of thought and our freedom of reaction. I like to repeat, willpower, particularly of course in meditation but in all other aspects also, does not mean that we have achievement syndrome, that we have result thinking. It strictly means that we know where to put our mental strength. The more often we use it, the stronger it gets. It's like lifting weights. At first we might be able to lift a one-pound weight and then we get more muscles and two, five, ten, twenty and so on. We get mental muscles. And in the end, those mental muscles do make it possible to see absolutely clearly and to recognize what this world is actually containing and our own place there. But we do need the strength and the strength is very much helped by using our willpower in the right way. So we have, we get mental muscles. Now of course concentration helps us there too since we're only going to have a few more days for this um, course and we have seven factors of enlightenment and we've only got to the third one I think I'll start with the next one at this moment and uh, continue on with that then uh, because um, that goes along the same sort of um, line the next four sectors of enlightenment are all connected with the first four jhanas. In fact, the names given to those four sectors of enlightenment are names for the four jhanas from one to four. Now there are derivatives of that. There are other other things also that are part of it. But primarily the jhanas are meant. Now what we have here with the seven sectors of enlightenment, we have of course, as I've said more than once, the bare attention, the mindfulness. And then we have insight, contemplation, contemplation for insight and the three characteristics. 
And then we have one of the mental characteristics, the willpower, to help us keep going. And only then comes the part connected with concentration. The part which concerns the meditative absorptions. Now, the eight steps on eight step on the noble eightfold path is summa samadhi, right concentration. And right concentration always means the meditative absorptions. Doesn't mean which uh, whatever method doesn't matter. Whatever method we use, it really doesn't matter at all. If one can get to them without a method, that's even better, but most people can't. Most people do need a method of some sort. So, methods are methods by any name. And if one particular method has helped one particular person, that by no means means that that method is now the best method. That kind of mistake has been made over and over again and books have been written about it and people are trying very hard to follow a certain method which to them is totally unsuitable. We need to find a method which is suitable, which utilizes our inherent abilities. Now, if we are inherently able to visualize just anything, well, by all means, use visualization. If we can't visualize for, for anything, well, why use it? It's uh, foolish. I was once in a meditation course, which is now 22 years ago, and uh, visualization was being taught. I can visualize anything at the drop of a hat. But all around me were people sitting, making drawings. And I thought, oh God, I must have missed something. I didn't hear that about making a drawing. I better find out. So there was one chap quite close to me whom I knew. In fact, I remember who it was 22 years ago, Denny. And I said, Denny, why are you drawing all this? What, what's going on? I must have missed that. He said, oh, I can't remember what to visualize. I've got to draw it. Then I've got to look at it, and then maybe I can visualize. I said, oh, well, no, I don't have to do that. And uh, for him, obviously, a method which would have entailed so much work and so much uh, probably anguish that it wasn't for him. For me, it was too easy. I'd been visualizing all my life. And I said, well, that can't be it either. So, but if one has that inherent ability, for instance, to make the visualization the all there is inside of oneself, one can use it for a concentration method. If one has the inherent tendency to see color, use it. Now, the reason we use the breath is because it's useful for everybody. That is a generalization. I've had a number of students who couldn't do a thing with the breath. But they have found something else. Loving-kindness meditation is a method. Not an end in itself, it's a method. 
It's a method to become concentrated. And so I, I like just to make this uh, particular point that um, it's not the method. It's the one that you feel is doing the best job for you that should be used. And we have, of course, those of you been in courses with me before, we have the sleeping method, which also helps a lot of people. And uh, we won't be doing it here now, but you know that we have two different kinds, part by part, and the uh, sleeping method in the fan method. And particularly the latter one very often brings people to full concentration. So um, it's um, quite useful. Again, whatever brings one to concentration. Now the Buddha also used quite a number of insight methods so that the mind could become calm. And we have done that in the way of contemplation. So again, we have that as a possibility. But whatever we use, the thing that is needed is that the mind stops thinking. There is nothing to think about. When we try to make a living, we have got to think about it. Because we have to do it right. We can't just do anything, we've got to do it right. Um, If we are um, confronted with another person, we have to think how to uh, react and talk. None of that is taking place here. Nothing. So what's there to think about? The only thing that we must think about is to remember to be mindful. And having remembered and being mindful, that's all. So if the mind in the meditation thinks, no goes from one thing to another, discursive thinking, we must become aware of the fact that we are connecting to the world, even though the world's not connecting to us. Why don't we leave them alone? They're perfectly happy without us, or so it seems. And then when the course is over, we can go back and uh, do our thing. But at the moment, nobody seems to be in any kind of misery just because we aren't around. Perfectly all right. Why do we have to connect to it all? Why don't we just leave them be? Why don't we just leave everything be? Why are we thinking? We're thinking of what we've done and what we're going to do. We're thinking of what we like and what we don't like. What for? It's dukkha. Has anybody noticed that thinking is dukkha? Yeah, good. <laughs> Very good. And thinking is not only dukkha in meditation. Thinking is dukkha because it's always changing and therefore creates friction. And because it is that, always changing, creating friction and really dukkha, and hard work also, most people are dead tired at night, even though their bodies may not have done a thing. They may have been sitting around all day. But there are many jobs that one does sitting. And then, 
and they're tired because the mind's been working overtime all day long. Well, what do we need that for here? It's totally unnecessary, isn't it? Why don't we just tell ourselves over and over again, there's nothing to think about. We really want to get in touch with our own inner purity. We want to get in touch with heart and mind as they really are without all the thoughts and reactions that usually hide this purity from us. I have said several times that we actually are already that what we would like to become. We already are and have inner purity and inner peace and inner joy. We have all that. If we didn't, there would be very little point in practicing to become aware of it. In fact, no point in it at all. For which there isn't a seed, it's impossible to grow the flower. But it's all in there. And it's waiting. Waiting for us to be experienced. But the only way we can experience it is if we let go of what we usually experience in our daily activities. What we usually experience in our daily activity is thought and reaction and wishing, desires, all that we experience that. We know that kind of mind. We're so familiar with it, it should have become boring by now. It's always doing the same things. It likes and it dislikes. It wants and it wants to get rid of. It thinks of the future and it thinks of the past. It's hoping better things for the future and it's regretting the bad things about the past. It's doing the same thing for everybody over and over and over. And not only that, but then we also have this a very interesting idea that we're special. We are doing that. Isn't that wonderful? Well, the thing that we actually do is exactly the same as what the next person does, only we have chosen a different subject to do it with. We think of the past in the way that we know it and the future the way we think it should be and like what we like and dislike what we dislike and the other person does exactly the same thing but chooses different subjects. And thinking of ourselves as special makes it much more difficult to stop thinking because when we stop thinking there's nobody there to tell us that we are special. And that's the difficulty. There's nobody there to underwrite this idea this is me look at me what I can do or look at me what I can't do depending on one's uh, um, inherent tendencies if it's a positive tendency look at me what I can do and if it's a negative one look at me what I can't do as long as we identify like that we can't stop thinking because it just isn't possible to identify 
while we have while we're not thinking. So the thing is that we need a little bit of insight into the reality of one's own person before the mind is willing to drop all this rummaging around the discursiveness the discursive thinking the thinking about anything at all makes it possible to be aware of the fact that I'm really here and if I'm not willing to give that up even momentarily I won't be able to concentrate having been able to concentrate once twice or three times there is no doubt in the mind that this is what is really delightful that is what is really concerned that we're really concerned with and the mind is more willing to go in that direction but some insight is needed into one's own personal reaction before one can let go of thinking for instance if one were to sit down with the thought the world at this point doesn't matter my own affairs in the world don't matter all that matters at this point is to become aware and become acquainted with this inner being which is just waiting to be discovered it might help it may not the Buddha had many ideas how to help one thing works for one person one thing works for another person but insight is essential the prerequisite and that's why on the seven sectors of enlightenment the inside factors are used first before we get to the result of the first jhana the result of the first jhana is piti, p-i-t-i and it's delightful sensation but we need the right approach we need the way to get in there and having gone once we need the way to get in there always and we can only do that if we are convinced that our own wishes and desires our own identifications our own place in this world is really not important and when we are convinced of that then we can do it and then we have a totally different feeling within as I said the methods are just methods I like to call 
the, the key which one has to keep in one's hand long enough in order to fit it into the keyhole. Having fitted it into the keyhole, we can unlock the door and go over the threshold. Whatever it takes to be long enough on the breath or on loving-kindness or on sleeping or on the colors, it doesn't give an exact time. The time that is necessary, which is long enough, is that the mind has become quiet enough that it doesn't get so interested anymore. Now, obviously, if one wants to meditate, one doesn't want to think. One has to think of, make up a lot of um, help in one's own mind, how one can stop thinking. Mainly to tell oneself that it's of no concern whatsoever. If we have been able to do that long enough, it, it may be ten minutes without thinking. It's not very long, is it? We can let go the importance of me for ten minutes, I'm sure. It's usually enough to change the whole inner structure to one of being out there with the thoughts connected to all sorts of things which are of no importance and to the way of being inside of oneself. The only way we'll ever find out what humanity and the world are all about is by being inside of ourselves. And it's not a thinking process. It's an experiencing process. Now, all the things that people have thought about, and humanity is very clever. Some people can think about the most outlandish things, things we don't understand at all, physicists and so forth. And uh, they have thought about many, many things. But are they happy and peaceful, thinking about all these things? We have had technological advances because of that thought process. But happiness and peacefulness? On the contrary, pressure and achievement are usually the results of all that thinking. So if we really want to find out what the underlying truth the absolute truth of humanity, world, universe. We've got to stop thinking about anything and start experiencing ourselves. To go inside and experience ourselves is um, a matter which is extremely not only interesting, but impactful when we do it for the first time. When we've done it many times, it's still interesting, but it doesn't have that much of an impact because we're used to it. 
we know that only there we can find truth. Everything else are thoughts. Thoughts are all right. We've talked about them long enough. But they don't bring the final result. The final result can only be done through experience. Through experiencing it. So if we have been on the breath, as an example for method, long enough, and we don't have to look on the watch or whatever, just so that we are finally convinced that we're going to find whatever we're looking for within and not without, and have been able to let go of thinking, the breath becomes very fine. And as it becomes very fine and very hard to find at times, it's an indication that the mind has become fine. And that's why the method of using the breath is so widely used, not only in this tradition, but in many traditions, also in other than Buddhist traditions. Because mind and breath are intricately, intricately connected. When the breath becomes fine, hard to find, or not possible to find, it's the indication that we can let go of the method and go inside of ourselves. That's going over the threshold, inside, as if one were stepping into the middle of oneself, where until then one may have had some idea of what all the inner workings of the body are, but it's got nothing to do with that. Stepping into the middle of oneself is stepping into the existing delight which all of us carry within and which we can never put inside from outside. We can have pleasant touch sensation depend upon outer condition and very short-lived. But the delight which is within us is independent of outer sensation and we can make it live as long as we can be concentrated. And because of that we have an immediate understanding without anybody telling us an immediate understanding of the fact that we are actually not dependent upon any pleasant touch sensation or any pleasant sense sensation we've got it all within and as we know that and explain that that we have it all within several things change within us. The first thing that changes, if we have understood this right, and when we do it for the first time, of course, we haven't understood it right, but we do it several times, many times. If we understand it properly, we will see that our craving for pleasant sense contact is vastly diminished not meaning that we don't get any, but we don't use time and energy to find them. And we don't use time and energy to try and keep them 
or repeat them because we know we've got them within we've got the delight within and that brings with it also a feeling of unity because we know what we carry within everybody else does too and it brings with it a feeling of compassion because it would be so easy to get there if one would just make the attempt and think properly and hardly anybody's doing it and it's such a loss for humanity not to be able to get inside there so there's compassion which is doesn't even have to be aroused it's natural the natural compassion is the result of this because one knows exactly the difference between the time when one was out there with one's mind and the time that one is finally inside with one's mind the difference is enormous and uh, so one realizes the difference so well that compassion is easy I usually call that having finally found a home for the mind a home for the body is easy everybody has it and we try to make it as comfortable as we can but as long as we can't get inside in the meditation we haven't got a home for the mind because even though the body is comfortable and the body is in in its home and has all the necessary equipment there the mind is still rummaging around out there as we can tell from our own meditation practice there's the body is sitting quite nicely and the mind is doing its own tricks in fact it does so many tricks that in the end we don't know anymore what's the trick and what's real it has so many ideas it's a the Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid I mean we usually don't have that many which is a blessing but um, we can have so many that it's almost impossible to be able to tell what is and what isn't it's when we are able to concentrate long enough and have told ourselves and given ourselves a chance for that that we can see that there is something entirely different existing in every human being than that which we are familiar with and that what everybody uses if you watch television for instance which um, I never do except that here in Australia in the family the news gets turned on so I see all these people that make news all of them are politicians which is just an example of humanity nobody's concerned with anything inside of themselves they're all concerned with things outside of themselves and argue about it no end well what we think is arguable what we experience isn't what we experience within ourselves no argument you've experienced it you know it but what you think 
Well, somebody else is thinking the opposite. And right now they're trying to get elected, so they're all thinking opposites of each other. So they're constantly arguing about everything. Even about things which I don't even know what they're talking about. But um, which don't seem that they really should warrant an argument. But this is the way the world lives. And this is the way we know the world. And this is the way it happens everywhere. Not just here, everywhere. And then we are surprised why people make war. Or maybe we try to uh, suppress that knowledge and think it's just wonderful here on earth. People are killing each other constantly. We're the only species that kills each other. All other species do kill other species, but not their own. You don't have to go into any foreign country to find it. There's murder everywhere in this one too. Why? People are not concerned with that which is of the greatest importance. Their own inner purity. That which is independent of anything that happens outside. That which really carries the greatest weight. That which is utterly beautiful and has no once we get to it, no resistance and no reaction. It just is. And that which is within us, of course, in the medita- when the meditation is finished, it stops, there's no doubt about it. But it does have repercussions in one's way of reacting and thinking. Because one knows that there is something other than all this argumentation and intellectualization and survival and desire. There is something else. Not only a hope and a prayer, as it has been many centuries, it's an experience. And when it becomes an experience, and we can repeat it again and again, We live that way. And as we live that way, it's a totally different idea behind it all. So then, the very first meditative absorption in Pali Jhana, J-H-A-N-A, is in Pali, P-T-P-I-T-I, which is translated in many different ways. The best translation, I think, is delight or delightful sensation. Now, if you remember... I spoke about the five hindrances as being the negative part of mind content. 
And one of the very and extremely helpful aspects of the meditative absorptions is the fact that the factors of the meditative absorptions are automatic antidotes for the hindrances. Now we can work and work and work and should work and work and work on our sensual desires, on our ill will, on our sloth and torpor, on our restlessness and worry, and on our uh, skeptical doubt. But if we don't have the support system of the meditation, it's going to be uphill all the way. With the support system of the meditative absorptions, it's much easier. I can't really say how much easier because it depends also how many of the absorptions we can do, how much insight we have gained, and how often we do them. But it is much easier. And I will now quickly enumerate the factors of the meditation as they work as antidotes against the hindrances. The first two factors are factors of all meditations. And they are initial application and sustained application to the meditation subject. In Pali, that's Vitaka Vichara, which is usually translated wrong. Usually translated as discursive thinking. Anybody who does jhanas knows that with discursive thinking you never get into the jhana. So, but initial application and sustained application to the meditation subject are two items which are present in all meditations, not necessarily only in a concentrated meditation. The initial application is always there and it works against loss and torpor. The mind has to get going. It needs willpower. And the sustained application is probably there in any meditation, even if it's only for a moment. And if it is longer than a moment, if it leads us into the absorption, it then becomes an antidote against doubt. We become very sure that we can do it, and we have no doubt that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. Not like sometimes it's being said, in fact, I think it's in a book. Somebody told me that. Somebody read a book, a Burmese. I can't forget now who it was or when it was. Some book, I think, where it says that the meditative absorptions are a later addition uh, to the Pali Canon and are not necessary. Which is such a mistaken view that it's not even necessary to say anything about it. So the sustained application works against the doubt and doubt is very, very detrimental. We don't get anywhere when we doubt. We've got to get past that. It's a real barrier. And I have talked about it already. And then, there's another um, item which arises in meditation, in all meditations. But of course, when it's an absorption, it arises much uh, stronger and longer and the longer 
has a greater impact on us and that's one pointedness the mind's not wavering around it stays on one point and if we have that in any meditation it works against our um, the uh, sensual desires because if we are one pointed on the meditation subject we can't at the same time find it too hot or too cold too early or too late hungry or full unpleasant uh, sense uh, contact and sitting or whatever it may be we are one pointed in the meditation so it's an automatic antidote against sensual desire or desire for sensual gratification and from it we can see also very clearly and easily that if we concentrate on something in our daily life we also don't need sensual gratification sensual gratification is one of the ways we try to get out of our dukkha and we try and we try and we try and we don't get out so we need another and another and another sensual gratification if we're concentrated on what we're doing mindful totally mindful of what we're doing then we don't need that we don't even feel the unpleasantness the dukkha these are three factors of meditation which arise in all meditations of course they have far greater impact if they arise in a concentrated meditation and therefore stay longer particularly the um, sustained application and then the one pointedness the initial application is only necessary uh, long enough so that one gets sustained application concentration and then we have two other items that arise in the uh, first absorption and the first one I've said already pity delight delightful sensation and the second one is called sukha happiness joy and it arises simultaneously with the delightful sensation but the delightful sensation is our antidote against ill will now obviously we don't have ill will while we're meditating unless the mind gets off the delightful sensation starts feeling the pain in the leg and I have ill will against the person that should be ringing the bell all possible anything's possible but as long as we are concerned with the delightful sensation obviously we can't have ill will can't do two things at the same time it has um, uh, residue because we know that we can get back there and therefore the things that we usually react to with ill will in daily life no longer seem quite so important they're still uh, happening and uh, the ill will might still arise but we can see that it's nonsense and can drop it a very great help because ordinarily people hang on to their ill will as long as they possibly can it's a me support system look at how badly it goes for me but here we know it's, it's nonsense so we can drop it very quickly and it doesn't the unpleasantness that people confront in daily life doesn't seem to have so much of a sting to it 
a little bit cushioned because of our ability to have a different mental and emotional uh, experience in the meditation. And the sukha, which arises simultaneously with the um, delightful sensation, is the um, antidote against restlessness and worry. We're restless and we worry because we haven't got what we're really looking for. Now obviously that's only happening during the meditation again, but again it has residual effects. I will talk about that tomorrow as it concerns the second meditative absorption because in the first one, sukha is only a byproduct and not our main objective. In the first meditative absorption, the main focus of attention goes to the delightful sensation. There's one other thing I want to say about this, and many other things we can say about it. I'll probably say some of them tomorrow. I might repeat myself tomorrow, it's also possible. Buddha repeated himself often, so that's all right. Um, the jhanas, the meditative absorptions, are necessary. Necessary means. In order to get the mind together and stop it from thinking. But they're not an end in themselves. They're mundane, not super mundane. And their main objective is to gain insight. That's their main objective. Because the insight comes automatically. One can't help it if one is paying attention. Of course, if one is um, in a type of trance, which I uh, did mention the other day, one doesn't gain any insight at all. One stays just as ignorant as one was before. Ignorance is the word that is used for lacking insight. And uh, one has no benefit at all. One might as well go to bed and sleep. The, uh, there's no benefit in chance, none whatsoever. But if one does the meditative absorption with full mindfulness and attention, it's hardly likely that one doesn't gain insight from them. And this one, the first one I have already mentioned, then one realizes without a doubt that there's that within oneself, independent of outer conditions, which is something that we are usually looking for through the senses, but are getting it without sense contact, only through concentration, in a far more um, pleasing quantity and quality. It has a greater impact than any pleasant touch sensation we could ever dream up or have experienced. So the insight is very important, even at the very start, that it's all existing within, and we don't have to go out there for it. <laughs>